And uh, I mentioned last uh, last Wednesday night that, Lord willing, tonight I would begin uh, or, or do a uh, message on the issues of uh, predestination, uh, election, uh, foreknowledge, and um, was fully intending on it being just a, a single service. But to be honest with you, uh, be frank with you, it uh, has become... Uh, a much lengthier uh, study, and so I'm going to, to preface it by saying this. Uh, tonight we're going to get into it, and we'll go as, as far as time will allow us to, but uh, I want to ask that you bear with us as we spend the next two or three Wednesday nights, depending on how much uh, time it will take to get through the material. We want to be thorough, and we want to be biblical in our approach on this issue. It's an issue that a lot of people get mis, uh, misunderstood, and and even, even people in good, solid Bible-believing churches, uh, will they may not hold to all of the thoughts of this, but they, they have secondary thoughts that are based on the premise that, of some of these things. And uh, so we want to look at this thing from a biblical and a scriptural uh, standpoint along this series of, of messages. And I'm not sure yet if it's going to be next Wednesday night or the following Wednesday night. Um, we're also going to deal with the issue, because it is a relatable issue to this, of um, the fact that the Bible says in a couple of different, several different places, in fact, nine different places, I believe it is, eight different places, I'm sorry, uh, that God hardened their hearts. And what does that mean? Uh, what are we referring to when we deal with that? And I've had a number of people ask that question, and uh, what does it mean that God has hardened somebody's heart? And again, it's kind of relatable to this topic and what we're going to be dealing with. And so, uh, bear with us. Uh, I don't want you to to um, form your basis and your stand, your, your foundation, your conclusion on just the first message, because it'll be incomplete. We won't have all of the material uh, from God's Word. And so, um, stay with us through the study, if you will. And um, we'll, we'll uh, Lord willing, the Lord will give us uh, great clarity. It is, it is in some cases a a. There are passages that people refer to that say, well, those are hard passages. But when you understand what they mean, even in the slightest, you begin to see how the passages clear up very quickly and how they make uh, very good sense uh, and that they are in line with everything else in Scripture. They don't contradict other areas of Scripture. And so we're going to do our best to be clear. Um, there is going to be a substantial amount of material uh, and so we're going to, I'm not going to rush, you know, run fast through it uh, because I don't want you to miss something in the process. Um, we want to thoughtfully and very carefully address it and go through it. It is a critical issue. And I, I was, uh, I was uh, listening to a fellow uh, here about three weeks ago on the topic. And uh, he's, he's fairly biblical, and I would be in agreement with him in, in most everything else I've ever heard him talk on or, or teach on. Um, but, but he got to this, this point, and uh, he had a point in, in it that I would disagree with him on. And I think there's biblical grounds for that. So, so let's, let's just jump into it. Um, I, I think I've prefaced as much as I can about it. And uh, there may be one or two other things I may pause and say, okay, we need to, to keep this in mind when we uh, approach something. But uh, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, let's look in Second uh, Peter chapter number 1, and uh, we're going to read the first uh, ten verses. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Father, once again, I come to you, I ask for the next few moments that you'll control our hearts and our minds and our thoughts. Help us to rightly divide your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We find here one of the, uh, one of the uh, times in Scripture that the Bible uses the word election. And uh, there are uh, really only uh, a couple of places that the word election is used. There are 20 different references to the word elect and referring to uh, uh, a group of people or a person in particular. Uh, four of those usages are found uh, in the Old Testament. Out of those four usages, three of them are referring to the nation of Israel specifically, meaning that God has elected them to be His people. God has chosen them to be His people. And uh, so the word elect and the word election here, I want you to understand, uh, they have a very close tie with uh, just basically the, the choice that God has made. He's elected this. He's elected to do this. Um, it's a choice that He has made. For instance, when He calls Israel His elect, that means that He has chosen them. Uh, the, the other time, the only other time in the Old Testament that the word elect is used, it is in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And uh, then there are 16 times in the New Testament that... Uh, the word elect is used uh, by itself without the, without the election being used. And um, four of those times, I'm sorry, 16 of those times uh, are used in the New Testament. Six of those times, it is referring to believers. It's referring to Christians. Uh, one of those times in the New Testament, it also is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the elect Son of God, uh, the one, the chosen Son of God, the one that is to... Um, be the anointed one, he's to be the Messiah, and he is the one that was chosen for that purpose. There was one time in the New Testament that it is referring to the angels as being an elect group, uh, the elect angels. Eight different times in the New Testament, uh, the word elect is in reference, again, to the nation of Israel. Now, the reason I took time to go through all of that is we need to keep that in mind. Because when the Bible is using the word elect in reference specifically to the nation of Israel, uh, it is not teaching 
of elect for the purpose of being saved. It is speaking to the fact that they have been His chosen people. They've been set apart and chosen by God for His people. So the question comes up, and, and there is um, a lot of people refer to uh, this set of views as being Calvinistic. That's kind of a, a, an overgeneralization of this. There are other groups that hold to election, but the Calvinists are probably the most famous. Uh, they basically hold to five points of Calvinism. And if you're not familiar with these, you don't, you don't have to know them, but it, it's not bad for a good Baptist to be familiar with what these are because the truth is they'll make them sound really good. For instance, I saw a, um, I saw a, a little uh, quiz, online quiz, where you, it asks you a question, you click an answer. And, and I'm going to read you the questions, all right? So, so, and, I, and I want you to, in your mind, you can answer them the way that we would answer them as, as people that aren't on guard against this whole thing of foreknowledge and predestination and, and uh, election being regarding the salvation of man. Uh, we, the, the first question to ask is, do we consider the Word of God to be our ultimate authority? Right off the bat, we're in agreement, aren't we, <laughs> with people that we would not agree with. Uh, so, yes, we would say yes. So, if the Bible is our authority, our sole authority, our ultimate authority, uh, our only authority, then would we be in agreement that any doctrine of the Scripture, or any doctrine that denies that God is due all of His glory is a wicked doctrine? Would we agree with that? Absolutely. We would agree with that. So, how much glory does God get for my salvation? As good Baptist. We would say he gets all the glory. I mean, I didn't earn it. <laughs> I don't have any merit. All the glory belongs to him for my salvation. So then they say, well, then what makes us different from those that are lost or condemned? And so we began to think, okay, uh, was it what I did or what Jesus did? Well, we would say it's what Jesus did makes us different than what... So then... Then from there, it asks you the question, well, then did Jesus do the same thing for everyone? Did he die for every man's sins? Well, of course he did. We would be in agreement with that. So all of a sudden, when we say that, then we have to go back to number four. If he died for everyone, obviously everyone's not saved. So what makes us different than those that are condemned? And the only two choices they give you is what I did or what, what Christ did. So you have to think, okay, well, I see what they're getting at. So, yeah, I did trust Christ as my Savior. I put my faith in Him. So, yeah, I guess to some degree, to a little bit, it was what I did to get saved. And so when you do that, then it takes you to this one. Uh, then it takes us back to that if, if we're taking credit for trusting Christ as our Savior, then I have reason to take some of the glory that belongs to God, and that is a wicked doctrine. So it, it's a bait-and-switch tactic, all right? So, and you see how, you see how deceitful this, this line of thinking can become. Because they put a lot of truth in it, things that we would be in agreement with. But they will approach it from this standpoint. Uh, because they believe in these five things, uh, they believe that in order for a person to be saved, God has to do all of the work and that we are not even able to put our faith in Him until... He has saved us. So let me go through these five things that they hold to. Um, some of you may have heard the word TULIP in regards to Calvinism. Those are the five. It's an acronym uh, that give the five points of Calvinism. 
And so I'm going to give you those very quickly if you're not familiar with them. The first one is uh, they believe in what's called the total depravity of man. The total depravity of man. And, and they use passages like uh, the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Well, if we're dead, how can we have faith? Uh, they'll even use verses like, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. So they say, you can't even have saving faith until God actually saves you, and then you have your faith. And uh, so what they're saying is, uh, that God alone has to do this work in a man and that uh, faith is it's absent of faith, that God is doing this thing. And so they believe in the total depravity of man, that a sinner, a lost person, is not able, and this is their, their premise, they're not able to come to a, uh, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not able to get themselves saved by putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's going to boil down to this. Do we consider, or do they consider, faith to be a work? Because what they're saying is, we're doing a work by putting our faith in God, and therefore we know that that can't be, because the Bible says it's not by works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so it really boils down to, do we think that faith is a work? We're going to look at that here from Scripture in just a few moments. The, the second thing that they hold to is, uh, unconditional election. Unconditional election. And this simply means that uh, some people are chosen to be saved. Um, God doesn't... He just arbitrarily and randomly picks and chooses. There's no, there's no thing He's looking for for them to be saved. Uh, and that He establishes this uh, before somebody is born. In fact, He established it, according to them, before the world was made. Now... Uh, we're going to look at that a little bit further, uh, and I would disagree with the total depravity of man. I believe the Bible teaches that even though man is, has, is depraved uh, and in, in lost in their trespasses and sins, I do believe that God gives even a lost person, I believe the Bible teaches this, the ability to, to discern the moving of the Holy Spirit in matters of salvation. When it comes to the matter of conviction of sin and needing the, knowing their need of a Savior, I believe the Bible is very clear on that, and I don't think that we need to really prove a lot of that, but I'm going to show you Scripture on that as well. Unconditional election is that God chooses some to uh, eternal life, and God uh, destines others for hell, and He does this arbitrarily with no rhyme or reason to it. It's just eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It's a spiritual um, game, if you will, with God that, hey, I'm going to move the chess pieces here, and these people are going to be saved, and these people are not. And so they believe in unconditional election. They also believe, thirdly, in limited atonement. They believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that the atonement that he paid for on the cross was not for everybody. It was only for those that he, the Bible they refer to as the elect that are in Scripture. That only those who God chose to be saved, those are the only people that God gave atonement for. I think it's very clear in Scripture uh, in numerous places that that is not true. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, it speaks very clearly of the fact that he died uh, for each of them, and uh, that the atonement is for the whole world. And uh, they'll, uh, they'll use uh, a passage um, from John. Let's, let's take our Bibles, and I want you to see what they're going to use in, for their argument. John chapter number 10 and verse number 11. This is what they're going to often point to, and they, and they have other scriptures too. I'm going to give you just a, this a very 
high-level synopsis of what the Calvinists believe or these that would hold to this type of uh, mindset. Uh, John chapter number 10, and uh, let's look in verse number 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So they'll say, uh, well, he only gave his life for the sheep, the ones that were going to be saved. Well, the Bible tells us that, that that's who he gave his life for here, but they're misdefining who the sheep are. Uh, hold your place here for a minute, and I'll show you the difference, because they won't, they won't look at this verse when they talk about this. But let's look in Isaiah chapter 53 for a minute. Isaiah chapter number 53. Verse number 1, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep. How many? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So yes, uh, there are some sheep here, but there are those sheep that are lost. And there are those sheep that are found. There are the lost sheep and there are the, the found sheep, those that are saved. And we, in reference to what, what God is speaking about here, the Bible teaches us in John chapter number 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Who did He give Him for? Not just the elect. It says He loved the world. Uh, so again, in order for them to hold to these things, they have to be contradictory to other areas of Scripture. Uh, so they believe in limited atonement. They, they, they fourthly believe in what's called irresistible grace. So if you'll remember back to the first point, the first point was a lost person could not have faith to get saved. On the fourth point, they say a saved person cannot deny salvation or refuse it if they wanted to. God gives it to them regardless, and they don't have a choice. In fact, if you say, well, uh, what if somebody goes into heaven kicking and screaming? They don't want to go there. Their refuting of that is... Well, when they get saved, God puts that willingness in them, and they don't, they don't go kicking and screaming and rejecting God. Um, so they believe in irresistible grace. And uh, they use John chapter number 6, if you want to turn there for a moment with me. And again, they, there are many other passages they use. I'm giving you some of the ones that are kind of the primary ones that they'll use uh, in, in establishing this. And, and what we're trying to do is I want to, I want to establish uh, what their thoughts are and they use Scripture, and if you're not careful, you'll read those Scriptures, and just like that little quiz they gave, it'll make sense to a point, and then you'll be thinking, well, maybe I am wrong. Maybe that is what the Bible's teaching. So I want you to be solid on this. You need to understand this very clearly. So John chapter number 10, and, or I'm sorry, John chapter number 6 and verse number 37. John chapter 6 and verse number 37. The Bible says, all that the Father giveth me, notice this word, shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So, uh, only referring to the ones that the Father had given. So they say, okay, this is the elect, and out of those that God has, that the Father has given me, those shall come to me. 
They don't have a choice in it. They, they are going to do it. And so they will hold to that. Uh, but you only have to read down a couple verses further to find out that that can't be what this is speaking about. It says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which, what? Seeth the Son... And, what? Believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, if they see the Son, and then, then that's what he's, they refer to here as uh, God's, God's saying, these are the ones that the Father has given me, if they've seen the Son. And, and that they hope that God's desire, God's will is, his, his hope is that those that see the Son will believe on him, and that they'll have everlasting life because of it. Now, with that being said, let's look over to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Romans chapter number 1. Let's look in, uh, we'll start in verse number, uh, let's start in verse number 16, be a good place to start. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto what? Salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, let me just stop for a moment and just make an observation here. If God chooses who's to be saved and who's not, and He does not give them a choice in the matter, it's irresistible, why preach the gospel? Why does God put such an emphasis on getting out into the highways and the hedges and compelling them to come in. Uh, why does he speak of the fact that men are to be, be preaching the gospel, to be instant in season and be out of season? It doesn't make sense if the grace is irresistible and God's going to save those that he chooses and man doesn't have a choice in it. And so we, be, we become what, there's a term that is used, we become predetermined, meaning that God has determined. Man doesn't have any work at all in the salvation effort uh, and, and doesn't have any, any uh, uh, role in the salvation effort. Uh, for notice what he says in verse number 17 here, Romans, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So he says in verse 17 that uh, this... Um, gospel of Christ, in verse 16, it says, Therein, in the, in, within that gospel, therein is the righteousness of God revealed. So when a man hears the gospel, would the Lord Jesus Christ be seen in that point? Would the gospel message, would the salvation message be seen? Well, absolutely it would. Well, we just read in John chapter number 6 that the Father's will is that everyone that sees the Son would believe on Him and be saved. So again, irresistible grace is, is in conflict. It's in direct contrast with Scripture. Look what he says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the, notice this, who hold the what? Truth. 
in unrighteousness. Now, these are ones who have seen the truth, but they've rejected God, haven't they? They, they, they hold the truth, but they hold it in unrighteousness. They've not trusted in Christ. Because, notice verse 9, that when uh, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world, from the very beginning here, the invisible things of Him are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without what? Why would they need an excuse? Wouldn't, I mean, if this was true, if, if God predetermined who was saved and who was lost and who would go to heaven and who would go to hell, wouldn't that give man an excuse to say, well, God, the reason I'm going to hell is because it's your fault. You're the one that sent me here. And the Bible tells us very clearly they're without excuse. Why? Because it was their choice, not God's. All right? So, so we, we see how this doesn't hold water, really, with Scripture. And then they believe, lastly, in the perseverance of the saints. Now, out of the five points, this is the only one I agree with. All right? Perseverance of the saints means once saved, always saved. You can't lose your salvation. Which, which holds, if, if the other four points are true... They, could, they couldn't possibly say that they could lose their salvation because it wasn't them that got saved to begin with. God was the one who did it. So I said earlier that it really boils down to, when it comes to dealing with a Calvinist or, or dealing with someone who holds to these values and, and these beliefs, it really comes down to uh, they think that by us having an act of faith, putting our, our, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that act of faith is a work and therefore cannot be a part of salvation. Let's look in Romans chapter 3. Just flip over a page for a moment. We're going to read, we'll probably be the rest of our time here in Romans 3 for a little bit, and that'll probably be about all the time. We it, Really, we are just, I haven't even gotten into the main points yet. We're just laying a foundation at this point, okay? So hang in there with me, all right? Let's look in Romans chapter 3 for a minute. Uh, now, and you need to understand this. When you read Romans... Uh, I think sometimes we're, we, don't, we don't understand the absolutely strong emphasis, I mean strong emphasis, that Paul places uh, on the Jews seeing this. They want the, he wants the Jews to understand these things. Now, as we get to chapter 3, it says this, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them, under the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their belief make the faith of God without effect? So even though they're the chosen people, even though they're Jews, and God has given them the oracles of salvation, and God has given them all of these uh, things that, that speak of the Christ coming and the Messiah and how He would come, and yet they rejected Him? He says, he says that even though they've had all these things, it says uh, that they, some of them did not believe. He says, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Can I tell you this? 
God can take vengeance on whom He wants to. In fact, we're going to see next week that He shows mercy to who He wants to show mercy to. And who He wants to uh, not show mercy to, He won't show mercy to them. And we can trust God to make that decision because He's a just God. And He's right to do so. We, we think of that concept and we think, oh, that's not fair because we think in terms of an unjust mind. But He is absolutely just. And so if He determines not to show mercy to someone, He is right to do that because He is an ultimately just God. So He goes on to say uh, in verse number uh, 5, Is God unrighteous? Who taketh vengeance, I speak as a man. God forbid. For then, how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as yet affirm what we say, let us do evil, and good that good may come, whose damnation is just? What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Now, we would agree with that at this point. We've all sinned. doesn't matter if they're children of the promise. doesn't matter if they're the Gentiles. Every one of us have sinned. There are simply two distinctions. Last Sunday, uh, I shared the story of uh, John Harper, the uh, Scottish preacher who went down on the Titanic. One thing I left out of the story for sake of time last Sunday, because we were pressed for time, is that when the Titanic sailed, they uh, sold the cabins by classes. They had first, second, third class cabins. When the, when, the, when the ship sank, just hours after it had gone down, the, the company that owned the, the shipping line put a sign up on the outside of their office, and they went from having three classes to only having two. And the two classes were this. Those known to be saved and those known to be lost. And really, that is what it boils down to. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew and a child of the promise. In fact, we're going to see that in Romans chapter 9, Lord willing, next Wednesday. It's not about your bloodline. It's not about your works. It's about your faith. Now, he goes on to say this. What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit, and the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So at this point, we're going to start seeing a contrast between the works of the law and the law of faith. Paul's going to address this here. So he starts in verse 20 here by saying, Therefore, because of the fact of all this guiltiness here, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Why? Because we're all sinners under the law. There is none righteous. 
But now is the righteousness of God without the law. Uh, now, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by what? Faith of Jesus Christ. So there is righteousness, but it doesn't come by the works of the law. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Now he goes on to say in verse number uh, 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that are born again first, so that they can have faith. Is that what it says? This righteousness that, come, that, that comes by faith is upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. doesn't matter if you're a Jew. doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It matters whether you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. That's what it, that's what it matters. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through what? Faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? He says, look, you've got a choice. You've either got the works of the, fle- the, works of the law or you have the law of faith. You've, you've put your faith. You've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he puts it on the individual, doesn't he? He says, listen, the only way you can get this salvation is by putting your faith or believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did on Calvary for you. Then he says this, where is boasting then? Notice the next line. It is what? Excluded. By what? Law? The law of works? Nay. But by the law of faith. Faith is not a work. In fact, Paul, Paul very clearly says, works, they won't get you there. Faith, not a work. And in fact, it's almost like God knew when He penned Scriptures that there might be this issue somewhere down the road. And he says, for this, this idea of faith, believing in Jesus Christ, he says, boasting is excluded. In other words, there's no glory in that. So then, if he's saying that this boasting is excluded. We can't boast on it. We have no merit by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who still gets all the glory then? He does. We don't get any glory for our faith. There's no merit in that. It's boasting is excluded. It's not a work. He goes on to say, by what? Law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So it is possible for a man to have the atonement that God has purchased for him on Calvary offered to him, and for that man to have a choice to either receive it by faith or to reject it. Now, it's going to all tie together here in probably two Wednesday nights now when we get to the issue of hardening the hearts. So my question is this. Has God chosen for some people to be saved and for some people not to be saved? And has He done that since the beginning of the world? I'm going to give you my answer and then I'm going to give you the explanation. Because it's not going to be what you think. Yes, he has. Let me tell you why. 
not everybody's going to heaven. Right? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, since He's willing for everybody to come to heaven, but He could not let everybody go into heaven, He had to make a choice. He had to say, okay, there's only certain people that can go to heaven. (laughs) Now, follow me on this, because a Calvinist would say, he just sits down and says, okay, you get to, and you get to, and you get to. We, from Scripture, say, no, that's not what He did. Before the foundation of the earth, he He knew that the Lamb of God was going to be slain, for the redemption of man's sin, and he chose, he elected for those that put their faith in him of their own free choice to go to heaven. And for those that did not, those that rejected the truth and unrighteousness, not to go to heaven. So it's kind of an odd way to word this because we want to say as Baptists, he didn't choose for some to go to heaven, some to go to hell. He did. He had to make that choice. He had to make, okay, here's the standard. Could God have saved everybody? Could He have? Sure He could have. He could have saved everybody. But He made a choice and He said, listen, there's an atonement plan that's going to go in place for the payment of man's sin. And so where the Calvinists and us differ is this. They say that without faith, or they say that, or we would, they say, that if we don't, if we are elected, they say that God could not save us if it was by our faith, because that's by works. What we would say is, God could save us, but He has chosen to make it a mandatory thing for only those that put their faith in Him to go to heaven. And he has chosen for those that have rejected him to not go to heaven. He had to somewhere along the line make that determination because he's God. He's the one who sets the rules. But he did not sit there and arbitrarily and miscellaneously and randomly say, you're going to heaven and you're not. He put a standard out there. He threw it out to man who was a lost sinner. And he says, it's your choice. It is your choice. So I have no problem with the term election. God elected for every person that believed to be saved. In fact, we saw a little bit of that down here in verse number... Um, uh, let's look at verse number 25 again for a moment. Uh, let's go back. I'm sorry, verse number uh, 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. He's not the justifier of just any random person out there. He only justifies those that believe in him. And that is why we are allowed to say, where is boasting then? It is excluded. And uh, we'll deal with that a little bit further next week. Don't hold me as a heretic yet, okay? Uh, but God did make that determination before the beginning of the world that only those who would trust Christ as their Savior would go to heaven. It is still God's grace, man's free will. God was the one who elected to do it that way. And so when I read about the elect of God, and it is referring to those that are believers, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, I don't look at that as being predetermined to be saved. I look at that as man's choice to be saved. 
And God has predetermined that if we make the right choice, we'll go to heaven. Uh, I am not a Calvinist. (laughs) I do not believe that God chooses for some to be saved and some not to be saved arbitrarily. He has put a standard, and he says this is the standard. So um, it is man's free will, and that is certainly within agreement of Scripture. Okay? Uh, Bear with me next week. Don't cut the clip where I said... uh, Yes, God does elect some to be saved and some not and play it outside of the context of my explanation. I can see somebody say, boy, look at this. The pastor said God elected some to be saved and some not to be saved. (laughs) Make sure you have the full context of that, all right? And uh, we're going to build on that foundation next week. I'm going to show you very clearly from Romans 9 and from a passage in Jeremiah uh, how all of that ties together and and how clearly uh, God teaches about the fact that those that uh, do put their faith in Him are the ones that He has said, if you'll do this, you get to go to heaven. But you gotta, you got to have your faith in Me. And that's how the Lord Jesus Christ could easily say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. And uh, so, all right, we're ten minutes after. Let's go ahead and stand. And uh, hang in there. It's going to get get a little bit deeper as we get along. Um, and then, Lord willing, I'm really hoping and praying that by two weeks from tonight, uh, we're going to deal with the hardness of the, God's hardening of the hearts uh, that I think is very, very important that we understand that from Scripture. All right? Let's be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless and use it, uh, help us to understand it clearly. And, Lord, I am thankful that 